Hello and welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. Welcome into another episode of Black, Brown, and Bilingue. We are uh, really, really geeked about having our guest this morning, um, uh, Professor David Stovall, um, who we actually met initially um, through the NIU Social Justice Camp. Um, he was a uh, speaker and just uh, captivated uh, the room. Um, and continues to do so with his work. Uh, Professor David Stovall is a uh, PH, uh, holds a PhD. Um, he is a professor of Black Studies and Criminology, um, as well as uh, Law and Justice. His scholarship investigates three main areas, critical race theory, the relationship between housing and education, and the intersection of race, place, and school. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Again, thank you all for having me. Truly appreciate being here. I'm loving what you all are doing and really appreciate that you all are getting the word out. Likewise, you know, um, when we started this uh, podcast, we really wanted to be um, kind of that seat at the table for the people who don't necessarily have a voice or aren't even necessarily in the room. And so as we were preparing for today, we really want to talk to you about, um, you know, critical race theory and, um, you know, how can we uh, fight against what is being out there, what is being said out there about what it is and the misinformation that exists. Um, so why don't we start there? Like, can you tell our listeners who may not necessarily know what CRT is? And I know that you also talk about CRP. So if you could talk about those. Surely, and thank you all for that. So just to set the record clear, people have this strange, I mean, I'm always, interested in seeing how folks come to these conclusions about CRT. And what I've concluded is that very few people are actually reading it, right? So this thing around CRT comes out of legal scholarship. It was a response to a movement in legal scholarship called critical legal studies. The premise of critical legal studies was that the criminal legal system in the United States is a class-based system. What CRT was saying was, not only is the criminal legal system a class-based system, it is also a race and gender-based system that appropriates or values the property of white Western European cisgendered heterosexual Christian males, right? So everything else is viewed as their property, right? Or everything else is viewed as strange. Critical race theory was saying because the legal system also is a system rooted in racism that we need to confront that racism and be clear about the ways in which it functions in our world. And folks in education were reading critical race theory and saying, well, we also need to understand the U.S. schooling system as one that is also rooted in racism. And when we say that, I think it's important for your viewers to get into an understanding around in the United States, we have to come to grips with the fact that we live in a land that is founded on slavery, genocide, and wrongful land appropriation. And when we start with that, a lot of people misconstrue that and think that we are accusing them individually of racist acts, right? So it's not this accusation or the individual as much as it is an understanding of the structures of the United States. And people feel emboldened based on that structure to act in ways that are racist and harmful to certain groups. So the structure empowers the individual to move 
in that particular way. So when we talk about race and racism and race and racism in education, it's really important to put critical race theory in this understanding that we are naming the structural function of racism in the United States. And then when you flip it into critical race praxis, this was a term brought up by a guy named Eric Yamamoto. And what he was saying is, because we understand the seriousness of the situation, we need to spend less time with abstract theorizing and more time on the ground with people who are experiencing the injustice, right? And he thought about it in four components. The first one was the conceptual. So what is it that we're trying to do? The second one being the material. What are the resources that we need to address the issue? The third one being the performative. So now that we have the issue identified, the resources we need, what are we actually doing with the people that we're working uh, with? And then the fourth component being the reflexive. So now that we've secured these things and we're actually working, every time we do our work, there's the importance of reflection. And that reflection is pushing us to think about what went well, what didn't go well, and now what do we need to improve? And it's really him taking from Paulo Freire and his understanding of reflection is the mechanism that we use to improve our work. So that, so CRT, I think in this kind of day of misinformation is kind of situated in all these strange ways, I think because people aren't reading or their reading is extremely selective and then using it at, in this kind of spin cycle, if you will, to kind of put out these things that don't necessarily um, adhere to anything that CRT has been saying. Right. And, you know, um, with everything that has happened recently with, uh, you know, Dante Wright and Adam Toledo, you know, there's a, every time we have these situations where law enforcement uh, murders individuals, particularly black and Latino men, um, you know, really understanding that CRT is that counter narrative, right? Because everything is the deficit right now. What people are saying about Adam is that what was he doing at that time of the night, you know, outside, where was his mother? Um, but they also don't take the time. So someone like you or anyone who's um, embraces CRT would say, well, what are the factors that led to that entire situation? And you talk a lot about um, engineered conflict. Can you talk a little bit about that so that the listeners can get a, a better picture? Yeah, so the concept of engineered conflict comes from this idea. When we see things like violence, homicides in communities, there's always, exactly to your point, a backstory. So when we think about that backstory, what actually happened at the moment of the conflict actually is part of this larger mountain of factors that we rarely pay attention to. And I situate that in a conversation that I actually had with a retired police officer, right? And he actually said to me, he said, look, you know, I said, I know, he said, I know the type of work that you're doing. And at that time I was telling him about a project that I've been doing around engineered conflict, looking at school closings, the destruction of public housing and law enforcement. And he said, you know, you're on to something and you're absolutely right. He said, but I need you to understand something in a particular way. And he said, I'm going to tell you how to make a killer. And when he said it, I was just like, whoa, what's happening right now? He said, look, this is how it works. You don't have a place, a viable place for a person to live. You don't have a viable place for them to go to school. You don't have a place where they are viably employed. And then you hire me to contain them with the idea that they will eliminate themselves in that zone of containment. So when we talk about homicides in particular communities, now we have to think about the structures that actually heighten the chances for homicide to happen. So if we look at people not having viable schools, people not having full term, long term living wage employment, people not having access to health care, people not having access to healthy food, we can actually map this. 
right? You can see it on a map. And when you actually map it, you also start to see that's your greatest preponderance of homicides. But we don't actually have that story in the mainstream media because when you talk about disinvestment, when you talk about this idea of planned abandonment, it has too many syllables for the news bite, right? So this idea of when we think about somebody like Adam Toledo, who at one point, and the video really becomes important, as tragic and awful as it is to watch. But when Adam Toledo was killed, he was walking, he turned around slowly, and his hands were up. So now the question becomes, how disposable was Adam seen to be in the eyes of the law? And I think that's what we have to really begin to understand. And what critical race theory text pushes us to do is to think about who is deemed valuable and who is declared disposable. And we see time and time again, when people are declared disposable, they do not have those life-sustaining things like viable schools, living wage employment, healthcare, and the like to make sure that they are in a situation where they can actually thrive. And that's the structural question that we have to ask. Who is valued and who is declared disposable? Yeah, you know, you also, um, you gave me so much to think about. And you talk a lot about school closings and what that does to communities and the displacement. Um, and I think that has two effects, right? Because like, let's say when public housing in the city was closed, people had to go somewhere. Where did they go? They often end up in communities that aren't necessarily prepared to engage. And so I have seen that firsthand in my previous school district because Maurice and I operate as building principals. And Maurice, you know that in DeKalb, when we had an influx of, of um, families coming from Chicago, suddenly the school district's like, whoa, we're not equipped and tension arose. So can you okay. also talk a little bit about that? Right. So, I mean, displacement and this is the thing. So you have to think about and thank you for mentioning displacement because you got to think about displacement in a number of layers. Right. Because you are displaced sometimes internally and then you have a displacement that is part of a distancing. So like what you all were talking about happening in DeKalb, just some 45 minutes outside of the city and in the city, even when families are displaced into areas that they are unknown there's a potential for conflict, right? Because I think a lot of times people wrongly equate this as a gang problem. This is a hypersegregation problem, right? So when people are in spaces where they don't necessarily move out of those spaces and those spaces are contained, now, because there's little knowledge of each other, there's the potential for conflict. Now, there may be some street organizations tension in terms of gangs, but it's really how you are affiliated in neighborhoods. So now people coming from another spot into another place, there may be friction, right? And then you double that up with thinking about historical gang structures that had a tiered system where all the leadership got arrested in the 90s and early 2000s and all that splintered. So now you have to think about these layers. So you have to think about splintered street organizations. You got to think about displacement into unfamiliar areas. And now we have to think about exactly what you said in terms of districts who now meet that grouping of people with this deficit notion, right? So at that time, exactly the time that you all are talking about, when you all got that influx of folks from Chicago into DeKalb, I was getting calls from all across the Midwest around people asking, what are we going to do with these city kids? And I was like, what the hell do you mean? What are you talking about? Right. And this thing around, well, we're not equipped and we're because what they were really saying in terms of the, the dog whistle politic of it was we know there's going to be trouble mm -hmm. in opposed to let's figure out how we can welcome folks and get folks situated. Mm -hmm. So that 
that thing is always present. So it's important to think about these multiple layers of displacement. Yes, it, because- it is so deep, right? Because, you know, a lot of the students in, in DeKalb were placed in um, apartment buildings where it was essentially a food desert. Yep. And there was an access to healthy food. It, it just had such a tremendous impact on the community. And suddenly it became those kids over there yep. in, the, in those right. apartments. Yep. Or, um, and so then there's that division. And, you know, kids, they're not easy to fool. They can pick up on that. They know when they're not being embraced. And so I, I can imagine that that has happened elsewhere across mm-hmm. the nation. Yeah, I mean, if you think about just here in, Chicago, here in Chicago and then just what that dispersal has meant all across the Midwest, right? So you, you're talking to folks in Des Moines, Iowa, mm-hmm. right? You're talking to folks in Racine, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Twin Cities, right? So all of these folks who have folks from Chicago who are now so imbued or panic stricken, or maybe it's important to just put that in, in real conversation, right? Panic stricken because we come into these particular districts and then there's all these all these fears that are broadly constructed in opposed to actually being real right they're they're they're, they're figments of imagination in opposed to actually being real so so david i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that because i think um when people hear chicago Right. I, I think there's something there's something about that um, that like 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 they have an automatic thought of what it means to be from Chicago, um, especially if you're black or brown, then. Mm-hmm. Oh, and you're from Chicago. Right. Um, uh, my cousin was sharing with me. I um, she lives out in Las Vegas now. And she, you know, she'll tell people she's from Chicago. And their shock and awe. Right, you know, how right. many people have you seen get killed? You know, like right. and like there's this whole storyline that right. goes uh, behind being from Chicago. W- what do you think is, is particularly special about uh, Chicago? Um, or, or maybe it's not something special about Chicago. Maybe this is something that is happening in other cities as well. Can you, um, you know, yeah. talk a little deeper about that? Yeah, I think in the last six, seven years, particularly when we saw spikes and homicides and that hit national news. So people now had this thing, oh, you're from Chicago. Are you in a gang? Did you get shot? Exactly the questions that uh, your cousin in Vegas was being asked. And a lot of that is coming, is myth making, right? So this idea of really what is happening here and not really paying attention to, well, what does it mean to be in a city that's hypersegregated? What does it mean in, to be in a city where you are perpetually in a fight with law enforcement for your own life? Right. So, I mean, that, that thing around how what type of deleterious effect does that have over time? And then what does it mean for not folks in terms of just being moved around and displaced? But what does it mean for your well-being long term? Right. So people don't have those nuanced conversations because the national public headline is that everybody's getting shot every three seconds in Chicago. But we're not asking the question why. And then when we do ask the question why, the blame is entirely in the wrong place. Like we've seen this thing now from the mayor in relationship to Adam Toledo's murder. And she's saying, well, this is the problem is gangs and covid. What in the ho- like that? That to me, from a public official to not have a nuanced response, knowing the role that law enforcement has played in this just becomes unconscionable. Right. But this thing around really putting together that cities have issues and cities have issues because certain people are valued and certain people are declared disposable. And what we're seeing is people surviving despite the declaration of their disposability. Right. And I think that's a tougher thing to have a conversation about because it's so antithetical to the national headline. Right. It's the fault of the people who are in those situations without looking at how structures deeply impact what's happening to them. Right. I think that's the biggest Uh, misnomer, right? When we don't talk about the layers of cities, because exactly 
to your point, Maurice, when we talk about other spaces in the country, right? So, you know, a young person from LA comes to Vegas. Oh my God, he's from LA. Is he a crip, right? Is he a blood? You know I mean? The, the whole thing. I mean, oh my God, he comes from New York City. Oh my God, is he, is, he, is he a drug dealer? I mean, you know, all of these things, right? All of these kind of tropes that are rooted in white supremacist narratives of dehumanization, right? So now it's really around thinking about there's always a different story there. And when we don't engage that different story, we start to engage self-fulfilling prophecies, right? That's why I think it's really important to talk to you all as principals, right? Because when you have these conversations, you got these scared teachers who now are having these self-fulfilling prophecies without a young person even opening their mouth, right? So this thing around really thinking about all of those layers that impact what we're seeing happening right now. Yeah, and you know, as you were saying that, um, I thought about too, whenever there is like a shooting, a mass shooting, people love to point out, well, what about black on black crime? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> or like, oh, look at all those gangbangers. And, and it was unfortunate that, you know, um, even like, I feel like the mayor of the city really is perpetuating that. Right. Right. It's, it's so frustrating. Um, you talked about you, re you referenced earlier the police officer who who talked to you about making a killer. Um, can you elaborate more, though, on how he, he said to you that um, that black and brown men are not born with the natural propensity to crime right. and how the system is designed to keep them incarcerated in, in perpetuity? Right. And he he was very forthright with that. He said, look, there is no police crime data locally or nationally that shows us that black and brown youth have a natural propensity for crime. We do not have that data set. Right. It does not exist. But then he continued on and he said, but what we do know that there are certain factors that can increase the probability of a particular conflict or infraction happening. And it's this really interesting moment. So in 2010, the uh, superintendent of the Chicago Police Department was a dude named Jody Weiss. And the rank and file officers didn't like Jody Weiss because he was he wasn't from Chicago and he was a he was a FBI agent. So they didn't feel like he really knew what was going down. Jody Weiss was on a radio program and he said this thing and real talk, y'all almost crashed my car when he said it. He said, we know that displacement deeply impacts crime. And I was just like, what? Like this dude just, he just comes out and says it. He says, look, we know that when people are moved around, forcibly moved into particular places, there's a greater chance that conflict is going to happen. We know this. So now instead of addressing the displacement, we put our focus on the quote unquote suppressing of criminal activity. So now what that means on the block is that everybody is a suspect, right? So in this idea of suppressing something, everybody becomes a potential criminal. So black and brown bodies are made criminal before they are considered human. And I would argue that's the rationale that we really need to be talking about when we talk about Adam Toledo's death, right? His body was understood first as criminal before as human, right? This, somebody, hands are cleared, hands are up. He turns around slowly and he still takes one in the chest. So now we have to think about that. And what that officer, that retired officer was saying to me was, oh, we know, we actually know this as a police department. And what we we don't want to say that because the honest gets shift shifted right it gets the placing of who should be addressing this becomes different right and everybody plays the blame game we throw it to it was the fault of this person it was the fault of this person it always comes back on being the fault of the person who was killed but at the same time without that analysis it throws us off in saying there's some deeper issues that we have to be willing to address, right? 
And if we're unable to address them, then we guarantee ourselves more of the same. Right. And I think that's a that's something that we have to put at the core of our analysis. Right. If we're not willing to understand the layered issues here, we have subjected ourselves and we have capitulated to more of the same. Right. So that interruption, that's why something like CRT or critical race practice becomes important to me because it's an active interruption. It is literally saying these things are unacceptable. And not only are they not acceptable, they're not giving us a holistic account of what's happening. Now we have to go deeper in terms of what this thing is and how we function in it. Very, I think it's, I think it's very challenging, right? It's, it's something that, that, that challenges um, folk to move outside of their norms. Um, yesterday, uh, I was invited in by one of my fifth grade teachers um, to talk with their students. And one of the things, so this classroom was a dual language classroom. It's a classroom mm. full of Latino students. Um, and one of the things I began to share with them, right, is even that, that, that psychological research that has happened that says that black and brown children oftentimes are looked at as older, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're viewed as older. And so I said, you know, had this officer known that this was a 13-year-old, a child, you know, but again, viewing their body as criminal, viewing this as somebody who's older and thus a, a threat to me, I think all of these things play play a role. But as I was engaging that conversation, um, again, as a building principal, being invited into this this uh, individual classroom with a teacher who was at that social justice camp because she actually came from you know the previous district as well. I thought, okay, well, here's one teacher out of my 18 who who has been brave enough to engage in this conversation. I, I guess my question for you, uh, David, is is how how can we be intentional within the education system, educational system, as far as interrupting? You know, you 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 talked about that need to interrupt. Um, what can we do as building principals? What can we ask of our teachers, um, our, our superintendents and administrators above us? Um, and, and I would follow that up with, you know, have you been to places where you've seen it done right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thing I think is really important is giving us an is really us having a analysis of what it is that we're in, right? So not just the current moment, but li- literally being able to say, okay, we got these three pandemics happening, right? White supremacy, capitalism, and COVID, right? So now we live in this world where these three things are actively happening. How do we understand this? More importantly, who has been affected in ways that until this moment, we did not pay attention to? What does it mean to pay attention to what it is that we have ignored? Now, when we talk about equity, who has been marginalized? And now are we willing to center their needs in our analysis of getting folks what they need? Because a lot of times when people talk about equity, it's wrongly construed as equality. And those are two different things because everybody does not need the same thing, which what equality says, everybody gets access to the same thing. People don't need the same thing. And you all as school principals know that better than most people on the planet, right? So because people don't need the same things, now how are we assessing what people need? What mechanisms do we have where we are actually listening to young folks and families? Now, upon listening to them, what strategies do we create to make sure they have access to what it is that they need? I actually have had the opportunity um, to work with a new principal, younger principals like you, like you all here in Chicago on the southeast side who has taken this head on. And she has actually engaged it in a way that I was surprised by because she was willing to 
say to herself, okay, as a school leader, I've been positioned antagonistically to the needs of my young folks and families. Instead of doing that, I'm going to position myself as a learner and doer. And as a learner and doer, here's what I'm going to do. And she actually had a she had a history of being at the school as a principal intern. So when she started off in the space, she was saying, all right, look, she was working with the science team and she was saying, well, why are young folks disconnected to science when we have all these things that can, we can connect them to? Right. So she was just saying, all right, well, look, here's what we can do now. Let's look at how our students are engaging and then ask them, is what we're doing working? She changed the mode of analysis and evaluation. She shifted it away from the district and put it right on our students to say, look, here are the folks that we are in service to. Now, how are we meeting what it is that we're doing? And now she's engaged in a school-wide project where folks are now beginning to take into account their content area and where the disconnect is, right? So shout to Barbara San Roman, who's the principal of Washington High School. And she's been doing this in real ways. And I was lucky enough to have her as a student in my class. And she was already, as a, as a teacher, she was already doing arts programming with her students outside of classroom space. And then I just happened to run into, you know, being in education spaces, you run into people super randomly. I ran into her in a hallway and she was just like, yeah, so all, look, I'm at this schoolhouse. I'm a, I'm a holler at you about what, what we're doing. And I was like, okay, cool. Like eight months later, she hit me up. She was like, look, I got it. This is what I'm doing. Here's how I'm going. She had the whole write up and I'm just like, oh, okay. You're thinking about this, right? But what she started, she shifted the frame of who was actually evaluating her. And she also was very clear about what it means to do this work in this time and then the history that it's connected to. I mean, she just thought about it super simple. She was like, look, I'm at a high school called George Washington High School with all black and brown babies. And I'm not gonna talk about this dude. Like, what are we doing? Like George Washington. And she's like, look, this, this, this isn't, George Washington isn't this just rando character, right? This dude is foundational to the acceptance of white supremacy as a foundational principle of this place. So let's talk about that, right? This dude isn't some innocuous person. Right? We, gotta, we, gotta, we gotta confront that, right? And if it ever comes down to a name change, I'm down with that, right? So she was, she was just like, look, we, we, we got to be clear, right? And I, I think I'm, I'm thankful for you all uh, for asking that question, because a lot of times when we talk about race, racism, white supremacy, the ways in which we're functioning in the world, we get bogged down in the fact of, you know, it's so, it appears so insurmountable, right? And opposed to saying, all right, look, here's what it is that we're in. What are we willing to do? Like you're... Maurice, your teacher who said, look, I got a group of fifth grade babies in a bilingual classroom who are seeing someone who looks like them and their family members literally just exterminated. So now, in opposed to always operating in the moment of crisis, what are we willing to do on the front end? Right. And I think that's what Barbara that's what Barbara has been able to do. She's saying, look, the crisis moment is one thing. Now we got to think about how do we preempt the crisis? And you preempt the crisis by being intentional about where it is that you are, what you have ignored, and now what are you willing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that, uh, yeah, no, that, I, that, that challenged me. I appreciate that because, right, I want to be I want to be able to be proactive, right, and work on on the front end. Um, you mentioned uh, that that we are in the midst of um, three 
pandemics. Um, and, and you, you called them out. Um, and, and I want to focus in on just one of those, I guess it is the one that is most recent to us. Um, can you talk a little bit about how COVID-19, uh, has impacted, um, some of the work that you do? Um, and then, you know, obviously the, the media has, has made a huge deal about how it has impacted black and brown communities differently. Um, you know, as you think about the work that you've done over this last year, um, can you, you know, talk to that end as well? What some of the things that you've seen, maybe even that the media is not covering. Right. I think, oh, go ahead, Lisa. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I want to add, and then what do you think that educators are going to be tasked with as more and more students start coming back into the buildings? You know, help me and Maurice out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this, I mean, the thing, one is really, I think, and I haven't seen this enough, is really acknowledging how challenging teaching is, right, or being a school leader really is, and what doing this in this moment really means. Like, it's been tough. I mean, and I'm I'm rando professor just teaching classes and man, real talk, man, that, that, that online, this, like this shift to online stuff has been heavy for me. Right. I mean, like it, I mean, even my physiological responses to being in front of a computer long-term, I mean, like, man, all of this stuff is heavy. So we, I think one of the things that really becomes important is acknowledging the real challenges of this shift. The second thing that I think really becomes important is taking into account that this moment has only intensified what many of us have known for quite some time, right? So this thing around like, cause a lot, a lot of people just kind of got intense about this moment of racial reckoning, but it's like, look, we pre COVID, these conditions have been clear, right? So, We've been here for quite some time. And then even coming off the Trump moment, right? The Trump moment was only a reminder of what the United States has always been. So now we were in, a re we were in this resistance mode to living in recognition to what we have always been. All Trump did was mobilize what a lot of folks have been thinking and feeling since perpetuity, right? So this thing around really thinking about that and being honest about that, because a lot of times people feel like the Trump moment was an aberration. Mm -mm, it was not an aberration. 74 million people voted for that cat the second time. So let's be clear about what, what people harbor and how they actually engage that. But getting back to you all's question about the school space, I think as more folks come, more young folks come back, I think there's some proactive things that we need to be thinking about. There's a, a doctor here in Chicago named Howard Ehrman who works with um, an organization called the People's Medical Response Team. And he said this thing, and actually we have some precedent around this, right? So when the polio, when polio was hitting young folks in the 50s, you could actually get vaccinated in your schoolhouse. So when you think about what this transition of bringing folks back into the schools, we should begin to be thinking about schools as vaccination centers, but you gotta have nurses in order for that to happen, right? And nurses have been removed by and large from Chicago public schools, right? So I think about this again, proactively. So now if we have, because the thing that we need to think about is in a global health pandemic with an airborne pathogen that can affect folks in different ways, we always have to think about our students as returning to multi-generational households, right? And now when we start to think about that, we should have those things in place that prevent spread, right? So if, you, if our schools become vaccination centers, then we have ready access for our young folks to get vaccines so they are not spreading them to older family members who may be immunocompromised, right? I mean, I think this really becomes important and we're seeing some districts across the country doing this. I think the other thing, and you all as principals get the brunt of this, when people are talking about learning loss, 
That's that to me is just the it's it's it's, it's inconscionable, right? This is like that, that is not the point here, right? Right. The issue is how are we getting young folks situated and acclimated in a space where they feel safe, where they feel wanted and valued, right? So that's going that's going to address quite a bit of your quote unquote learning loss. Right. So this thing around learning loss just becomes another trope. And actually, for you all as principals, it becomes another measurement tool by which to further demean you. Right. So now you got another marker that says, OK, we've had this learning loss. you got to get students up to blah, 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 blah level. And it's all arbitrary. Right. So this thing and what the COVID moment has opened up for us is that we really see the trash that standardized testing really is. Right. No young person has died because they have not been able to take a standardized test. Right. So this thing around really. And when you see districts suspended and then they look at their data, they go, oh, shit, we never needed this thing in the first place. (laughs) What's the purpose of this thing? Right. So now I think we have this very narrow window to say, look. This standardized testing thing is a ruse, right? It's it's not showing us anything, right? It's not demonstrating to us levels of improvement. It's not telling us what young folks are interested in, what they gravitate towards. All it is is this random marker that is set up arbitrarily that is a continuation of the broader project of eugenics, right? So this thing around being clear about that. I think this moment, to you all's questions, I think this moment really allows us to say, look, some things that we've been doing, we've never really needed. So now, what are we willing to do to shape this? But I think that the rhetoric of learning loss is a trope, right? That That's problematic in the myriad of ways. You know, sorry, I... I uh, we also like, can you add on the, this whole, um, cause here's another trope, mm-hmm. the achievement gap. Yeah. Man. yeah. And this, let's, let's set to your point. I think this is clear. Folks need to read Gloria Latson Billings, right? I love her, yes. Because what she says is, look, the gap is the false, is the false narrative. And here's, here's why the gap is the false narrative. The comparative group is white students. But here's what we know about standardized tests. As a group, white students are third right, <laughs> in terms of their quote unquote performance on standardized tests, right? So the gap is a false notion because the comparative group isn't even the top group. Right? So let's, let's start there, right? Let, let's, let's, get, let's get into that. And then the two other groups that are ahead of white students are Asian, Folks, particularly from Korea, Japan, and China, and African and Caribbean immigrants. <laughs> it's just like we we not even we got the wrong comparison groups, right? So what Gloria Lazen Billings often talks about is we need to think about debt. So what is owed to Black and Brown students based on what has been stolen from them, right? So if we think about our work as replenishing the debt that is owed to black and brown students, then our work is different, right? The language of gap, the language of educational gaps are always problematic. We need to think about them as educational debts, not what students can't do, but what is owed to them, right? What is owed to them living in a place, existing in a place that is founded in many cases on their deaths, Right? So I mean, so this thing around really putting that into context and into the broader conversation, because that that gap language is just a false notion and it does not address what resources have been removed from schools. Right. And that these gap, these performance gaps, especially on arbitrary tests that aren't really telling us anything, this becomes highly problematic. So I agree wholeheartedly with Gloria Lassen Billings in terms of we need to frame, reframe that conversation and think about debt in terms of what is owed to students given what has been paid. 
right? So, so that, is this like a big money making scheme? Like, is this really the root of it? Because you talked about capitalism earlier. Like, right. why, what, why are we so resistant to, or let me rephrase that? Why are we so married to a standardized test? Right. Well, let's because of who it. does well. Right. 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 One to your point, Maurice, because of who does well. But Lisa, to your point around really thinking about the notion of capital in this, right? Mm -hmm. Because remember, Pearson has $100 million contracts with states, right? So they got, Pearson has lobbyists, right? That actually go to the state house to make this, make this ploy, right? So this, this is by and large a money-making scheme, right? Mm -hmm. Off top, right? We have to, we have to put that on, we have to put that on Front Street, right? A good friend of mine next month, actually the end of this month, one of the homies, uh, Michelle Tenham Zeebach and Daniel Cohn have this book coming out and they call it the Assessment Industrial Complex, mm-hmm. right? And they break, they break it down. They say, look, this is, this, is, this is about making money. This is not about doing right by any students. Right. So this thing around really. So these lobbyists actually pitch this stuff to states when we know it doesn't have any, it doesn't have any value. Right. To what we know our students thrive and engage, interrogate and build on. Right. We we know this. Right. So this thing around really being clear about that, I mean, assessment in that sense becomes a scam. Yeah. And they, uh, Michelle and Dan have done a really good job around this. And then there's a, a book called This Is Not a Test that also breaks, um, breaks that down because this, I mean, we have to have a deeper understanding of what this means. And it's really interesting because in psychometrics, they talk about this all the time. Right. Psychometrics say, well, look, these are this isn't necessarily telling us like psychometricians agree across ideology. The best thing a standardized test tells us is how well a young person takes a test at a particular time of the day. Mm. That's about all we can know. Right. And this is according to the people who make tests. These are psychometricians. This is agreed. This is agreed in the field of psychometrics, right? So this thing around really, so they got you all as principals and teachers and young folks in this hamster wheel that they know is arbitrary, right? I mean, so that- And it has real implications too. Like suddenly it is, it is um, attached to school ratings. And if you get a low rating, suddenly the, your workload as a principal increases. And Public now school. the community, yeah, on the school. Yeah. I mean, it's just a mess. I mean, look, and, and look how they look how they do y'all dirty with this, right? Super dirty. Right. So they 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 get they get these things because like so here in Chicago, we have uh level one through three, right? And they, you know, you get your rating or what have you, but we they got slick with it, right? No, so now we got a level one plus. Right. Well, what is that? Right. So you got a level one plus, but literally, depending on the size of your school, the difference between the highest level and the lowest level could be like three students. Right. So this thing around, I mean, so it, it's I mean, it is a tragic numbers game. Right. So this thing around, I mean, the folks in the opt out movement are. I think onto something and really to think about it different to think about it differently. But to you all's earlier question, the federal government has a mechanism around this that they use against districts. If a certain percentage, if over 25% of your district opts out, then the feds, under their discretion, can deny you funding. Right. So this thing around. So now when you talk about how the lobby, how the testing lobby is ingrained in this, they've literally created a structure where if too many people opt out, then the Fed dough gets cut because the testing agencies cut that deal with the feds. So, I mean, this thing around really thinking about, to you all's point, how ingrained this is. Right. In terms of. So you're literally talking about 
a structured inequality in relationship to high stakes testing. And, and here's the thing. I thought about this because Lissette and I both are talking about going back to school in order to become principals. Guess what we had to take? Two high stakes tests in oh, order to oh. become a teacher. You, and, and so I, I sit on a committee for the state of Illinois um, that 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 works on recruiting diverse teachers. Mm -hmm. One of the issues is, is you want me as an undergrad to pay $200 to take another standardized test? Talk to him. Talk to him. Look, that Ed TPA, look, I'm a Chicagoan. We got another name for that, Maurice. That's extortion, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's extortion. I mean, what? Right. Come on, man. You want to graduate? Pay up. Pay like, up you, like, you, you want to finish up? You, I, need, I need 300 off you real quick. What? Man. <laughs> well, and then, to you all's point, let's not forget with that ed tpa assessment remember that you have to tape yourself teaching and then it's sent to an outside evaluator and i'm saying to myself schools are contextual why are you having your work as a teacher evaluated by somebody who does not know the context mm. i mean that is that is that is dumbfounding like what what are we talking about here right so if a young person has some critical analysis about themselves. They just like, man, look, I'm, I'm through, I'm through, man. Like, what? Like, what, what's happening here? But the hope is exactly to your point, Maurice, is that when you get to the end of your teaching battery in terms of your teacher training, now they hold it on you and say, okay, well, you're so far gone. Now the only choice you got is to come off that dough, right? So I mean, so it's it's. It's bogus. I mean, it is absolutely foul, right, in terms of really thinking about that and what it's connected to. So when you unmask that and you see it for what it is, now we got a bunch of critical questions. And that's why this moment, back to you all's earlier question, that's why this moment becomes so important, because all of these testing things have been suspended. And everybody's okay, right? I mean, that's the, that's, the, that's the thing. Like, no one has been harmed because we're not testing, right? But people have been harmed because we don't have a structural analysis around how folks get affected, especially during a global pandemic where people have been systemically denied healthcare, mm. right? So, I mean, this thing around really just being honest about this, man, and, and what you all are doing, I really appreciate this because... What you all are doing is putting this out in the world mm -hmm. so people can understand it and see how they connect to it, mm -hmm. right? Because the instances that we're talking about here in Illinois are comparable and shareable across region, right? Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, I hope that any listeners um, right now, everything that we've been talking about is really CRT and that counter narrative. If you're a school leader or a teacher and you get those results, and you see, and if you're in a primarily black and brown building and you see those results and it's like, oh, deficits, deficits, deficits. Well, CRT tells you, well, look at the system there. It's meant to show that or attempt to show that um, our students are are not achieving at the level that they should be. But it's a losing battle, really. And I think for you all, that's why it really becomes important to challenge the metrics and say, well, what are we really looking at? Right. So if we look at something instead of test scores, what if we paid attention to attendance? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what if we, so because if young folks are there, then something is happening in that space, right? And as young folks get older, you can't necessarily compel them to be in spaces, right? So if they're there consistently, there's Ooh. something happening, right? What if, what if we started to look at efficacy in learning according to young folks? Right. So who who actually is actually doing work in spaces that young folks feel a connection with and actually feel as if they are learning. Right. So, I mean, these things are these and, you know, people have done this historically. So I'm not talking, you know, this isn't kind of side of my neck talking right? there. There are people who have been doing this work. So now what does it mean to challenge this particular space and not get into this kind of oppression Olympics, right? Well, you all aren't getting the full story because my young folks are going through da da da. No, it's like, look, 
we, we got to figure out how young folks can connect and how do we support young folks. And then once we get into the process of supporting young folks, now we can do our work. And the responsibility on districts is you can't keep disinvesting from the spaces that our young folks are. Right. I mean, I, that that is just that is the bottom line in terms of you cannot expect any type of improvement in a place that you are perpetually extracting from. So you you mentioned something. I just got to comment on this and then we're going to wrap things up and we're going to let yeah. you get on with the rest of your day. We appreciate your time so much. You you, you were talking about this and I, I, I sat I sat with um, my team of special education teachers the other day and um they were talking about the fact that the more that we pull them from the core, right? These kids are showing up every day, but the more that we pull them from core instruction in order to remediate, we actually are widening the gap. So then we, the school, are actually producing a larger gap than the student walked in with by attempting to somehow pull them up. And so I think to your point, what, what, what we must do is we must find ways to connect our students with learning in a way that would accelerate that learning, right? Because, because as, as much as I am not a fan of standardized teaching, here's what I do know. You got to be able to read. I need you to be able to read. I need you to be able to add some things together, multiply a few things, right? These are some things I need you all to be able to do uh, to be able to access the world. And if we are pulling them and we're trying to get this and add this other mm-hmm. stuff in, and we, we, we've lost time. We, we, we've lost time. So, well, I mean, it, and it's the thing around, really around, like, so uh, going back to Barbara's instance, what she really did, and, you know, Washington is a big, big high school. Like, it's almost 2,000 students, uh, black and brown. And she took careful time to where she talked to everybody in that space and listened around what was working and what was not. And then she she created her teams and those teams then reported to her around how are we improving on what is working and how are we taking into account what is not. So your example, Maurice, is really around how are we listening to folks? And now from listening, how do we create our strategies to engage young folks in the schoolhouse, right? That thing becomes important because we see the roots, we see the setup, right? So now how do we think about abolishing those things that are not making sense and now building up structures that are viable to the folks that we care about, right? So Barbara, Barbara took careful time in doing that because we were in a meeting with her and she broke down what she was doing and we were all like, oh, okay, she's serious. She's not playing here. Because when she took that time, now she could literally identify to us what wasn't working and what was working. Here, here are the teachers who really understand what it is that they do. Now, what does it mean to put them in spaces where they're sharing that work with others in terms of engaging, right? So, I mean, those, those things we know are not rocket science, but they just take a different approach, right? Because the, the current space is one that's rooted in our disposability. That's not acceptable. What are we willing to do to think about our work entirely differently, right? And now, how do we engage folks based on that understanding? Love it. So it, it is our tradition here at Black, Brown, and Bilingue that uh, we ask our guests um, to leave with us uh, their parting words. If there was one thing you wanted the listener to know, they've made it this far in listening to the episode. Uh, what's the one thing you want them to walk away with today? Um, you can share that with them. To never be afraid to listen and fight, but be clear about what you are fighting for and what people are you working in solidarity to bring on that fight. Beautiful. David Stovall, thought provoking. And you know, 
the first time I heard you speak, I'm like, man, I'm going to get get out there and do something. But again, today, I'm like, man, I ain't doing enough. I need to go out there and do some more. I need to be more disruptive. And Maurice, we got to be disruptive. Come on. I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For Black, Brown, and Bilingua, I'm uh, Lisa Jacobson. And I'm Maurice McDavid. Muchas gracias for tuning in.